going the e-commerce route the first few times is probably the best path because you could build something in a couple of weeks that might be paying you a couple hundred or thousands of dollars a month. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. All right, everyone. On today's show, we have Dennis Hegstad. Dennis is a serial entrepreneur in the D2C Shopify app space where he co-founded Live Recover, an SMS-based cart recovery app that was later sold to Voyage SMS for eight figures. After his exit, Dennis went on to go and purchase OrderBump, a Shopify app that helps brands drive upsells during the checkout process, which he bought in November 2021. But he later sold OrderBump uh, to AppHub and is now on his third Shopify app, Vigilance, which helps large brands understand where they might have coupon leaks on their site. Dennis, welcome to the show, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. man. Excited to have you on. This is a conversation. I mean, I've been following you for a minute, so it's a conversation I've definitely been looking forward to. You've got everything from a cool career to cool lifestyle that I want to kind of get into all of it. So um, we'll try to unpack as much as you can in the next 30, 40 minutes and see where it goes. But uh, something that I always like to kind of get in, um, I think what's what's cool about your story and cool about your background is that you've done a lot of stuff in a very short period of time over here in like the last two years in the Shopify app space. But most of the people that we go and bring onto this show, typically like the flashy headline stuff that got them the notoriety that they have now isn't actually where they got started or where they cut their teeth. So I kind of love to maybe understand prior to even starting Live Recover, um, you know, was that your first real time making money online outside of like getting a job or anything? Or did you have a lot of side hustles and, you know, uh, businesses prior to that? Uh, yeah, so Live Recover was 2018. Uh, that was, I guess, four years ago. I'm 33. And so I think my first business was on MySpace in 2007. I got into e-commerce then, you know, we got built a site on WordPress, wasn't anything crazy. Um, and then MySpace died. I was kind of like into Twitter, got into some meat building meme accounts in like 2010, 2011. Uh, but by 2012 and 2013, we were, I say we, like me and friends who were in that meme account community were, you know, had figured out how to drive hundred dollars a day in revenue from sending clicks to advertisers. And then it was like a thousand a day. And then I got to the point where like, man, we can own websites and drive traffic and get paid from advertisers like Google AdSense, but we can also send links to affiliate offers. And so in 2014, uh, me and some buddies built a platform called Exposely, which was an influencer marketing platform back in 2014. We done like a, I don't know, maybe a million and a half or 2 million in revenue uh, when we had like within maybe about 18 months. And then it just became the thing to do, right? Everyone got into it and it became very congested and crowded. And so we ended up sort of just kind of selling off the company for scraps. And I got sort of more focused into e-commerce. So that was about 2015, 2016. Did you ever have kind of a typical nine to five job or was it always trying to figure out how to make money online? I worked at McDonald's when I was in high school to piss my mom off. Uh, I had a job working for a server company called Velocity. And I also did like Counter-Strike and played competitive games in high school. And so I made like 1500 a month or something on PayPal when I was in high school. But my mom told me I had like no work ethic because I was always on the computer and she didn't understand what PayPal was. And she thought it was like fake money. And so I, to spite her, I got a job at McDonald's on Saturday and Sundays from 6am to 2pm and made her drive me. 
So she had to, cause I didn't have a license. My mom was like, okay, I get it. You, you work. <laughs> and then I quit McDonald's and then, yeah, I, I had a job for like maybe eight months while I did Twitter meme accounts. I was living in Los Angeles and I worked for a guy named Jason Calacanis's company called, he had a company called Mahalo, but inside of that, he had some experimental companies. And so I wanted to go work for like a big VC funded startup and see what it was like. Uh, and while I didn't really learn too much there, cause I was just a low level employee, it was still cool to kind of like be there, I guess. I love how like most people's answers of like how they would try to go and like piss off their parents. It's like, Oh, like started smoking cigarettes or like went out drinking. You're just like, I got a job and it really pissed her off. Uh, but <laughs> well, I guess she had to drive me. She didn't like it. Cause it was really early on. the Yeah. Weekend. Okay. So I'm, I'm curious now. Uh, I want to, I want to jump into a bunch of stuff here. Let's see. Uh, Okay, one of the one of the spots that actually Gio and I were just jamming on prior to you jumping on the call here. Um, so I used to work at a company, Privy. You definitely know Privy, I would I would assume. Oh yeah. Um Privy Ben, big fan of Privy. Yeah, Ben's Ben's the man. But so I think I don't know if I can share the exact numbers of what they sold for, but I know like headlines say it's nine figures. Um yeah, I knew that. I knew and, that rough number. Yeah, and so big, big company. Um, and like they had an awesome multiple for like what they're selling for. And so I'm, I'm curious So when I was there, it was one of those things where I'm like, great, like Shopify e-commerce in general, growing, growing business, uh, the actual out of the box solutions that Shopify offers are not there. So like apps make sense. Um, and the margins obviously on software in general are just incredible. And, and it's an amazing business model. Um, but what I always remember like hearing, especially coming from like some people who maybe were building on like the archaic, like Microsoft apps and all of that kind of stuff back in the day is like, as you kind of build on some of these marketplaces, you kind of run into this risk of like, if Shopify turns around and was like, don't worry, we're going to set up a coupon monitoring in your store natively, it kind of screws you over a little bit. And I think like double-edged sword in the sense that like you're being fed from all of Shopify's marketing efforts and like get a, get to kind of go and like roll with all of that. Um, but do you ever kind of think about the Shopify app ecosystem and like, does that ever scare you when it comes time to like buying and building a lot of these Shopify apps? I mean, I think platform risk is always there, but I don't think Shopify has been historically very good at making apps. And so if you looked at like all Shopify has a lot of apps, uh, and if you look at them, they're all pretty bad. And I say this out of respect to Shopify, but they have, you know, uh, an email app. Clavio is still the dominant player. They yeah, have- They just invest in Clavio too, right? I think- they Exactly. So yeah. and you see that them, they're placing bets, they're doing all these kinds of things, but like, I think that they should probably be buying great apps and learning how to support those things because they have a huge chunk of their app ecosystem that they don't participate in. But at the same time, they are trying to build an e-commerce infrastructure platform and not try to do all those things. Because once you do all those things, then like you become in the business of providing customer support and onboarding and this and that. And they're just like, dude, just do all that for us. We'll take our 15% rake and we'll sit back and make the fees and we don't have to deal with any of that. And so I think Shopify is not really in the app business, right? I mean, they are, but they are on the back end because they want to provide you the API endpoints and the tools so that you can do the work for them. Uh, now, if you get to a certain level of scale and it makes sense and they're like, okay, this is something that maybe, you know, makes total sense as a core product for Shopify to have, then they might buy it, right? Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they bought Clavio, but it's too late at this point. They might be too big. So instead, they just invest in them. They have a great relationship. They make some returns. It's a good narrative for Shopify. Clavio generates more revenue for their customers, which means more processing for Shopify, which means more money, right? So I don't think generally I would, I'm not as scared of Shopify being better than me at building an app. 
But if that if they were to gate some sort of feature API where it says, hey, you can't build that because we're doing it now, that would be terrible. <laughs> but so far they've not, they've only done that in the sense, which I think made, I'm on Shopify's side of this, even though it sucks for the people who had their own checkout. Shopify made everyone leave from the recharge checkout, from the one-click upsell, whatever checkout, from the cart hook checkout, all these various third-party checkouts and said, no, we need to process all this GMV. This is our product. This is literally our core product offering is our platform in the checkout. And so you guys have a two-year like runway and then this is going to get cut off. And so I think that's the only scenario where I can really think where they've kind of like gated something but that's their core product and it makes a lot of sense to me. that yeah i was gonna say that makes sense because honestly i think right now in one of my stores it's like we pay 2.99 a month or whatever the fee is for the actual subscription software itself and i'm looking at these other bills and i'm like fuck we're paying attentive 800 last month we're paying clavio 800 last month or like i'm like shopify is not charging enough and then i look at the actual bill and i'm like oh no they're 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 taking a lot they're just taking a lot in a different way which isn't like the reoccurring subscription revenue um but they also i think also they also just bought, is Dovetail the last one that they bought? I may be wrong. Yeah. That. Yeah. They bought Dovetail, which is now called Shopify Collapse. What do you think about that? I think it's a great move for them. I think uh, I'm worried that Shopify won't like uh, kind of nurture and keep the same quality level of product that Dovetail maybe did. Because it's What is now, Dovetail? They were a creator management, essentially influencer management uh, tool for tracking and just participating yeah. in that kind of stuff. Yeah, and now Shopify has essentially acquired it. Yeah, Shopify acquired it and rebranded it. So if you go to dovetail.com now, it goes to collabs, which we think is a great opportunity for vigilance is that like, hey, if Shopify is in the business now saying, look, we don't need you to go to one store to sign up or 50 stores to become an influencer on all 50 and have a deal with them, just come to Shopify. You could have access to 50,000 stores or 500,000 stores whenever they all opt in. That's way better as an influencer because you have less to deal with. It's all in one place. And for us as vigilance protecting against, like you said, the coupon code leaks, we think that hopefully, you know, that means that there will be way more coupons out there that we can protect against. I mean, it definitely sounds like Shopify has gone the most effective route, I guess, in terms of the platform risk. Whereas if you look at something like Amazon, where having originally become like an Amazon seller, you can see that they they have actively knocked off sellers products and tried to compete in the same category. And, you know, they'll steal the advertising space right above yours with their own, you know, they'll go to your manufacturer, which I think has really discouraged right. a lot of people from that market and also brought, you know, significant regulatory headaches for them as well, I think specifically in Europe. Um, so it is cool to see probably a company that's maybe gone the more, you know, cohesive route of building up, um, you know, the more, the more effective apps, the better. And yeah, to your point, they don't have to use any developer um, time or anything to get kind of those apps in place. Yeah. I think too, that like they, they might get there soon, like by making an investment in Clavio and not attentive, even though Clavio has been there much longer, it makes sense in my opinion, but they, they're kind of choosing favorites. And that might mean that eventually when the shop app evolves that who, what merchants do they show and what apps do they show? And does Shopify have a vested interest in these apps? And do they, do they have an algorithm that favors things that they have participation in? And then is this marketplace, does Shopify eventually buy DTC brands? And then is it just because they want cash flow? Do they care about the data? What is it for? Like there's, they're, they're going to walk a slippery slope here if they kind of make that shift. But so far, I think so far, so good. Yeah. I think Harley or 
maybe it was Toby, somebody came out the other uh, year and was just talking about how like they never are in the business of being kingmakers, I think is the word that they used to describe it, where like they don't ever want to be the marketplace. Like even they have the shop marketplace right now, basically, but it's not so much a marketplace where there's like a ton of algorithms that are like pushing products up to my knowledge, at least. Um, they're, they're not trying to go and like necessarily promote, they're trying to have everyone winning. One thing that I think would be really cool to get your perspective on, because knowing our audience, our audience is like typically young entrepreneurs and either on their first or like trying to start their first business. And I think a lot of people right now, like, I think I tweeted this out like a, a month or two ago. It's like D to C and e-commerce in general feels like the gateway drug to entrepreneurship, uh, in the sense that like real estate seems hard. You need a lot of money to start typically, not always, but like you need like, like these upfront costs and this experience D to C is like, I can watch some YouTube videos. I can probably go and order a couple hundred products without needing like a ton of cash in the bank. I can spin up a website. I can like go and get started. Um, I would love to maybe get your perspective in terms of like, if you were starting something today, would you go purely the Shopify app route or would you go and try to go and start maybe an e-commerce brand? I understand that's kind of a, a weird question. Um, but I'm curious just knowing the market and what you know right now about both. Like what I would I rather, if I was starting my first thing, would I rather go into starting a brand or would I get into so, uh, some kind of software stuff? Yeah. And why? I think, I think depending on your skill set, like if you have a, if you are just like interested because you like brands, you think ads are cool, you see viral TikTok stuff, you're just like, you're, you're looking for a taste at that point, right? You just need to get your feet wet. And I think going the e-commerce route, the first few times is probably the best path because you can get started really cheaply the quickest like like path to sort of getting affirmations of like oh i did it right okay next step it's a lot harder with software you might build things for weeks or months and if you have no experience with software it's going to be very expensive or you're going to not be that great at communicating whereas with the brand there's so much content around like drop shipping or starting a company there's even companies that are like hey we'll help you build a skincare brand or we'll do this for you turnkey. And the, you know, you got to vet these people obviously in the companies behind them, but like for the, for low cost, you can just pop up something with a couple photos, a product or two and start running ads and using, use a Shopify store or whatever your preference is. Hopefully Shopify, you'll probably be able to make, you know, your first sale or sales, which makes you feel really good. Even if you send it to friends on Instagram and you spam them or you make a TikTok and it randomly goes semi-viral right you might just all, all of a sudden get that feeling of what it's like yeah does that mean that you know you're going to be a success maybe not you could fumble the bag and not fulfill inventory people charge you back and then it's like cool it didn't cost you that much to learn a lot too about how to deal with these like cheaper problems but if you are called a 15 or 16 or 18 year old and you have a software background and you can build these things and it's not a challenge and it doesn't cost you money to go Maybe it's a little bit of a time challenge and an educational learning curve, but you don't have to go spend thousands or tens of thousands or 25, 50,000 to build a solid MVP that customers are going to want to pay for. You can just do it in your free time on the weekends or, or all the time. I mean, you could build something in a couple of weeks that might be paying you a couple hundred or thousands of dollars a month. And that's also pretty cool because you have, you are the one that created all that stuff, even though it's nice to go do e-commerce because you can buy something, slap logos on it, rebrand something, put it in a cool package or a box. And all of a sudden it's worth not the $2 that you paid for it. It's worth the $25 that you're selling it for. Uh, and that's cool too. You still made something. I just, it's a little bit of a different process, but yeah, I would say e-commerce is probably the, the best path to starting out unless you have a software background already and you can build it yourself.
on on that note, what's your kind of origin story then behind Live Recover? Did you have the software background? Did you bring in a co-founder? Did you kind of have money that went into there? Or, you know, how does that kind of come into um, into play going the tech route first? So I've, I'll just say I've been trying to build software stuff for a really long time. And uh, when I was about, the first company I built after e-commerce was a company called YesPix. We tried to launch a photo sharing app. This was like before Instagram was out. Uh, it was, there was a company called Hipstamatic. They were the first photo filter app on the iPhone 3G. And we were like, whoa, there's the YouTube partnership platform. And then there's this filter app. What if we blended those and we paid people to take photos on our website? And we were like, that sounds like a good model. And we raised a little bit of money, like 25 grand or something from some friends and family. And then uh, we launched a website and this is when building an iPhone app was like $100,000. And then we realized, shit, one, we didn't raise enough money. And two, I don't know people who can build us an iPhone app for less. And so we ended up closing down and then I just doubled down on all the meme stuff. But uh, I don't have a technical background per se, but I've like gotten to the point over the last 12 years plus that I've hired engineers, gotten screwed over, overpaid, also work with some great people too, who have, you know, been willing to share information. I've taken, you know, months of courses and stuff, but I'm not the person I'm good enough to break stuff and I'm not good enough to build stuff. And so my, my co-founder in live recover is the, or was the, the CTO and he built all the software except for. Once we're like maybe a year and a half in, we hired a second engineer, but uh, he built everything himself. And it was actually his idea. It wasn't mine, uh, which he's just not on social media. So he's, he doesn't get, he doesn't want the credit, I guess, or he doesn't care as much. Yeah. More, just, just in it for the exits. What are, what are his no, he's just a private guy. And so I'm like, you know, it works out for what we both, I mean, not that I care about being public. I would prefer to be like rich and private than public, but I still have a ways to go uh, in terms of getting rich, I guess. But uh, for him, he's like, I just want to be anonymous. And I'm like, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm like, but which means I take the heat in any bad environments. You're like, fuck Dennis or the co-founders of this business. If, if they were to say that, yeah. they wouldn't be including his name. But if they were talking <laughs> good about it, they'd be like, oh yeah, that's Dennis and his co-founders company. So it right. kind of works, works in both ways. You, since you've like either started or bought a couple of businesses now over the last couple of years, like, how do you think about vetting whether or not something is a good idea or not? Because I think, um, maybe I'll caveat this a little bit, like when most people are starting these companies and a lot of friends that I'll talk to who like haven't run a business yet, they'll tell me their idea. And I'm like, I've never heard of anything like this before. Like, it's totally new, whatever. And in a lot of times when I say that, I actually mean that almost in some of like a, a bad thing, like the fact that it doesn't exist and nobody's done it and nobody's making money on it right now means that there's probably just not a big market for it or it's like really difficult. Like, uh, very often the people that I find that are making money, at least with the least friction are just doing things that other people are doing already and just doing them much better. I'd be curious to hear your take in terms of how you go about evaluating this stuff before like actually sinking and investing your time into it. Yeah. I think that, well, what you said was kind of spot on and that like, I don't want to, depends on your risk appetite and how much conviction and how like passionate you feel about a specific problem that you want to solve. But I think with live recover, we knew about attentive. There was SMS bump. Uh, there was probably another competitor or two out there. And we were like, okay, they're just building the MailChimp for SMS and we get that, but we don't want to do that. We're like, let's do something that's a little different. Uh, and I had run paid media at Fashion Nova for eight months when I was living in LA. And from that, I'd seen some things that I thought were like deficits within some of the apps. And so fast forward, we're like, 
so many brands want to do some of this live chat stuff, but they just don't have the resources to hire someone. So like we should provide the tooling and that managed service. Uh, and then eventually build for enterprise where we just provide the tooling and they have their own humans using our software, uh, which we did not get to before we sold the business. But um, yeah, I think if I was starting something new, right? Like with order bump, I had friends like, dude, why would you buy an app for that much money when you could just build it or go build something new? And I'm like, well, I was also buying revenue. I wasn't just buying an app with no customers. I was, what I was buying was actually revenue. And when I, when you, the math of what I paid for, I actually got a really fair deal because uh, primarily because the people that I bought it from were, they're focused on an agency. They're, they're amazing builders, great designers. They're all around as great guys, but it wasn't their full-time focus. Right. And so for me, I was like, this is a, or upselling order bump was not a it's not a new revolutionary idea to doing upsells. There's plenty of competitors in the space, but that's also something that a lot of people need. And so for me, my opportunity was, well, it's not their full-time thing. It's just a side project. I can make it my full-time thing if I buy it. And then also, I think I'm a little bit better or I'm better at marketing than they are because I'm full-time do this and they full-time build and design. And so I should be better at marketing. And so from that, I'm like, okay, it's an obvious, I can change this business. I can improve it. Let me try buying it. Um, but if they were like an NFT product that was like web three risk, not that that's bad necessarily, but I would not have invested my own personal money into buying an app like that. Even if that had revenue, just because it's too speculative. And I, and I know that upselling is a category that's not going anywhere. Um, but it also, there's a differentiator, like there's a big difference, I think between look at, like say live recover and like an order bump and just the category and all their competitors, right. There's an SMS and there's like some huge companies. When you look into upsell, there's not really that many big companies. The biggest company in upsell, the two biggest or three, the top three are definitely one click upsell, uh, some other so rebuy re and then one other one that is older that's been around longer. And like those three are all still less than, you know, the majority of some of the SMS apps by a, by a long ways. So it's kind of like, if you're going to build into the ecosystem of Shopify, you got to look at the category and be like, who are the, you know, the top of the top. And then also like kind of just be realistic that like, okay, you're not going to go build a hundred million dollar a year upsell app, even if you think you are because you're, you know, ambitious or whatever, there's no upsell apps that are making over 10 million a year. And so you would be the biggest and you're also seven or eight years late to the party. So, right. No, that's, that's a good way of thinking about it. One thing that I uh, took away from the first job I had, the first job I ever um, worked at in college was this company called Drift. And they basically found like this massive market, which is live chat, essentially. Uh, do you know Drift, by the way? Yep. Yeah. So like live chat at the time. Um, and, but it's like all for support. And like, anything about it, like, if you're a business owner and you're trying to go and buy software, there's essentially, there's more than this, but like to, to kind of dumb it down, you're buying software to make you more money or to save you money. Um, and so with live chat software specifically, it was all about like, how can I go? And like, it's essentially, it's a cost center. It's a, how can I go and like retain customers and try to go and like make my customer support better. And all they did, because they knew it was a massive market, all they did was like, what if we just did this for sales? What if we just did this and like you can actually just like sell to a live person on your website rather than having to go and deal with somebody shipping their order back or whatever. Um, and they sold last year or the year before something like that for like over a billion dollars. So I do think that that's like a really good way to go and kind of position a lot of this stuff is if you can find something that already has like a massive market, like you were saying, like 
SMS, for instance, um, or email or whatever, and honestly just reposition it to be like, no, 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 we're email for X. We are text for S. We are whatever for X. Um, I think it's a lot smarter of an approach than trying to go and like create an entirely new thing out of box. Yeah, I think for us, we wanted, we didn't even think of like attentive or postscript or SMS bump or voyage or via or emotive. Like we didn't think of any of these people as competitors. We were like, they are an automated tool and they're doing it this way. We're going to do something that isn't going to be like, quote, as scalable. But if we can do it in a smart way, we can still scale and be different and be different enough that people said, hey, like, oh, I use Attentive and Postscript or I use Attentive or Postscript, but I also use it with Live Recover because you guys had the human element and all the response times and the quality of the responses were good, um, yada, yada, yada. And so for us, it was different enough that we would use your tool alongside these others. And that's where we wanted to be. We weren't like, yeah, you should just use us and not them. We were like, oh, we really think Attentive and Postscript and Voyage and whoever, they're great. Uh, you should just use us for the checkout recovery and this stuff because we actually have people on the other end and they're like, oh yeah, you know, the brands that it mattered to, it really mattered to. And the ones that they did it, that it didn't, like then eventually we would have hoped that they would just be sold on finding out why they should have talked to us in the first place because they find out, oh, these automated tools, like we have questions, no one's answering. How do we do it? Right. But the market's caught up a little bit now. And I think it's becoming some, it's becoming a problem enough that like, you know, Attentive acquired another company called, uh, that was similar to us that along with the privy deal that did human texting. And so I think now brands are, are starting to all want this. Having gone through the process of building an app from scratch and also buying it, has that kind of changed the perspective of how you view the whole buy versus build scenario now, maybe specifically in the, um, Shopify app ecosphere, if you're, you know, someone wants to get into it in the beginning and they, they maybe have some money, would you recommend that they kind of go find a similar product, buy it, then upsell maybe their own? Or how, do you, how would you kind of view that now if you're starting from if scratch? You, if you had the money, that's a great question, I think. If you had the money, I would personally buy something that's already working and just like use that learning. So then you can just learn way faster, right? You're cutting a line. You might build something and you might not build it good enough. You might not know how to maintain it. The costs that come along with it are probably maybe more unknown to you. Whereas if you're auditing a business that's smaller, maybe it's making a thousand dollars a month and you're like, Hey, maybe I can buy this business for like 15 grand. And if, if I have some friends that are in the same circles and I'm in some cool Facebook groups or discords, or I watch these YouTube videos around Twitter and LinkedIn or this and that, like, maybe you can take that app from a thousand to 1500 a month in a couple of months or even to 2000 a month. And now all of a sudden in just six months, you've made all your money back. And now you just have something that's paying you every month, right? I think that is the is a better way if you have the money, which is a privileged position to be in. So I don't think that's as easy. And also there's other caveats around that. Like, is this app worth buying? Can you do diligence around, is this code actually produced by the people that you're buying it from? Or is it a license to code that you're actually stealing IP and someone just kind of fraudulently sold you some kind of MRR that's based on something that they've actually licensed? It sounds like a personal story or, or something. No, no. I just read all these things about oh, Microfire yeah. and people who are like, you know, it's like, I have a company that lets you build your own, you know, what Buffer is or Hootsuite, mm -hmm. these scheduling tools. It's like, oh, you want your own Buffer? Well, pay us for like, you know, $199 a month and you can make your, we just do buffer your, you know, white, white, label, buffer. white label buffer. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. I build that up. I get to 2,500 in MRR and I sell it for 
50k or whatever I want to ask for it. And people are like, oh, wow, this is, a, you know, growing small SaaS business, but this could be interesting. And then you find out that, well, they don't own the rights to their light, their IP, and that you actually just bought a, you know, something that belongs to Buffer actually. So some people are doing this and trying to sell companies off as things that they own as their own without the people who are buying them knowing that they didn't actually buy any underlying technology. They're kind of being frauded. And so I think, yeah, you need to go. That's thankfully not been a situation for me, but like when I bought order bump one, I paid one of my friends to do an audit. I paid two different developers to do audits of the code. And also I knew the people who had built it. Um, and I wasn't buying the tech. Like if I had to build the tech all over and I just bought the revenue, that would have been okay for me. Um, I think you also have an interesting kind of scale problem though too, right? Because if you buy an app that's too small and you don't have the tech background to really make, um, you know, make changes and upgrades, then you're in a position where you don't really have enough revenue every month to hire a developer. Maybe you got to kind of go the contractor route. Is there a minimum kind of amount of scale you think that's necessary when buying one of these or really depends on, you know, the type of investment, if it's a kind of more educational to learn the process and build it out versus a, you know, significant financial investment where you probably want a full team behind you? Yeah, I think, you know, I do have a little bit of a biased perspective now since I'm, I have a little bit of money from selling those businesses, but like, I'm not interested in buying something that's making less than call it 25 grand a month. Um, but that doesn't mean that you should, right? Because that might cost you half a million, million, million dollar, right? That's a lot of money potentially. But if you're going after something small, you have a $5,000 budget or a $10,000 budget, right? I think Nick Sharma just bought an app that was making like eight or $900 a month and he paid eight grand, right? Or something like that. Um, now that's not crazy, but if your goal is not necessarily to do intense product development, it's just to like, buy something that's a decent investment that will, as long as you maintain it, will return some investment in a, a year or two. And if you can accelerate that revenue by growing the app 50 to hundred percent, then you, that's, I think it's a smart exercise to do because it's low risk. You could buy a business and learn how to deal with all that, you know, the stuff that comes with running a business, right? If something breaks and the hosting goes down, you don't know what that means. And like, you better fire, find a developer who knows what Heroku is or who thankfully is hopefully working on Amazon Web Services or whatever the case may be. But I mean, there's also young guys I see on Twitter who are building apps for like $500 with engineers overseas. Um, so I think, you know, just depends on your goal, right? Like you said, if someone's younger, they might not be trying to go diving in with six to seven figure acquisitions. But if you have, you know, a couple thousand bucks or five to 10 grand saved up, and you're like, I really want to get into the space of Shopify, whether it's e-commerce or apps, like, I think that's a, that's a fair starting point to at least, you know, get your feet wet without risking it all. One thing, since you're so involved in the space that I would love to get your opinion on is like, are there specific categories and apps that are either a catching your interest already or that you're starting to go and see become more and more popular um, over the last six to 12 months. And on that note, maybe the inverse as well, categories that you think are, you know, you wouldn't touch. Yeah, there's, I think the ones that I find interesting that are popping up more is price testing. Like a year ago, I tried to buy an app. It's actually called Dexter, but I tried to buy Dexter and I ended up not buying it they do price testing. And then now I've seen another uh, price testing app that raised a couple of million bucks that launched uh, in the ecosystem. And it's, you know, I think that I've, I've been posting for a couple of years along with a few other, you know, e-commerce e guys about like price elasticity, you know, what, what is someone willing to pay for an item before they're not going to convert? And if it's, 
you know, if I sell it to you for $19.99 and my conversion rate's 5%, but I could sell it to you for $22.99 and the conversion rate's still 5%, then why am I not inching the price up by three bucks? So on, bucks? on that note, it's so funny you mentioned Dexter because I saw that for sale on MicroQuire, I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I also like was literally using Dexter this morning um, to go and test out a different, uh, different price for one of the products that we're selling. My only qualm with uh price testing apps is it seems like one of those things that's a it's really i think one of the best features of certain apps is that when you can make somebody more revenue it justifies charging them more and with price testing specifically when it comes to an app basis like like you you're, you probably hate this i'm sure as a shopify app owner but like i have a quarterly reminder on my calendar to delete all apps that i'm not using with the price testing stuff specifically it's like cool i'm gonna go and run this dexter test on like three or four different products and then i'm gonna figure out what works and like kind of spend a and lot then of you're time gonna uninstall it. it it's kind of like you use it temporarily and then you take it away yeah so that would be my only thing however i think you can maybe get over that if you like i would think something like one of these triple whales or i think north beam might have just raised money or sold i don't know what they did both triple whale and north beam have both recently raised okay i was gonna say i think for them this would make more sense uh to go and acquire a brand like that because if you can bake in the ltv the, the only issue with the, some of the price testing stuff is you can go and get more dollars per site visitors um which is an awesome thing like if, if i raise my price from like 70 dollars to 100 dollars and great now my dollar per site visitor went up from like, you know, 120 to like 135. Awesome. You'd think that you should go and keep it at $100. Um, but then if you go and start baking the LTV and you're like, well, actually I'm getting less customers overall as a result of this. And if I actually just like kept it lower, I would have a higher uh, LTV of all of these customers and be able to go and sell more in the future. Like that would be something where like an analytics tool like that could come in and probably even help as well. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of like how to make an app like that better. Uh, to go and yeah people yeah I think time. I think that like when you that's a those are things that most brands aren't even like smart enough to be measuring yet because some people are like you know we're not most people want to buy a customer and try to make most of the money on the first sale which is not that's pretty tough to do um, but if you're a brand that's got you know recurring revenue or people will use it for a year or it's or years right like there's definitely uh, yeah I mean to your point, if you inch up the price too much, you could be scaring off repeat buyers because even though they bought now, they might not come back because the price was too high. But um, yeah, so I think that category is great. I think one that's, I don't think it's going away by any means, but I don't fully understand it, I think, uh, is headless. Like I understand the sell of like, it's faster and you can do this and that, but like realistically, most brands on Shopify at least are not, there's only like 50 brands, maybe a hundred, that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars direct to consumer. Um, and those brands still are not barely, they're barely at the scale where like optimizing for like that half millisecond load speed is worth the investment in having like a $300,000 engineering fee for the year because you need to always have people to build you custom applications and do this and do that. And so while Maybe I don't understand the full vision of headless. I think most brands that if they're like doing 10 million, 15, 25, 50, even a hundred million a year, and you're like shifting everything to headless, I think you might be like over-optimizing for things that don't matter and like focusing on your messaging and maybe some of your funnels and nurturing or your customers might be a better use of time than like over-optimizing for the speed of the site because your competitors that are smaller are still not focusing on those things and they're still growing their businesses. So it's not a problem there. I don't, 
but yeah, if you're doing, if you're Nike or you're doing drops and you have massive amounts of traffic and you're just like, you know, it's crazy worldwide, right? Like I imagine if you're doing a billion dollars a year in revenue, like Fashion Nova, they probably have their own servers at Shopify, right? So yeah. like with Amazon, like, so there's, there's, there's probably that I think is something that's phasing out, but maybe it's just because I'm not as much of a believer in headless. I also think um, like from my, my take on this, is at this point, I use a developer anytime that I need like an actual proper landing page done or like something like that. However, like all of the Shopify landing page tools, Shogun, PageFly, I think GemPages is one. Um, like I've never had a good experience with anyone, which is shocking to me, uh, just with like how it doesn't seem that complex. Um, but I'm noticing more and more brands are sending people to like different types of landing pages rather than just product pages off of traffic. And I do think a cool opportunity would be, I think something like what Nick Sharma is already building. I think it's H-E-R-O-X. Maybe I have that wrong. It's hooks. I think it's called hooks. Hooks. Is it? Oh, okay. Uh, if it's called hooks and they, they do like custom landing page development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's something like, I think. Some, some other kind of spinoff, like that's a big enough market that you can have several different big companies in that space, I would think. Um, but like seeing that and also seeing all of like the advertorials, which is basically like, uh, you know, hey, let's white label this website and list like five reasons why people like so-and-so brand. Right. Um, I don't know. Both of those seem like really cool opportunities to me from a different like sales funnel standpoint. Yeah, a lot of brands that do the most paid media, those are the tactics you have to use. I mean, advertorials are like tried and true, uh, basically like a fake editorial that comes from a brand. But yeah. You're invested in Mad Rabbit, right? The tattoo care brand? Yeah, yeah I'm a huge fan. So I, and I'm a huge fan of the, both their team, their branding, all of it. Like, I think it's a really, really cool company. I'd be curious to hear from your standpoint, like you're coming from the software world where like you love and are dealing with like the 90% plus gross margins. So it's just like, and the reoccurring revenue side of all of it. Um, why consider investing in the like physical goods space just because you, you really believe in the company or um, I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, I, I think I have a lot of tattoos. I have like my legs from my you know my feet all the way up to my butt and I have my chest and I'm getting my back done like I'm just I'm, I'm interested in covering my whole body uh, and I wanted to start a tattoo company when we were having conversations of selling live recover because that was like the one thing that I was like I thought could be dope and so I bought a domain called newtattoo.com n-e-u tattoo.com and I started getting dome like design work done and then I was like, wait, I need to just look, do we have any brands in live recover that do tattoo? And so I looked and we had one and it was mad rabbit. And I like reached out to the team and I was like, Hey, look, I was thinking about starting a tattoo company, but honestly, I might just be taking a break and, and in my head, I'm like, it makes more sense to get into Shopify apps again. And so I, yeah, I just reached out to them. If saw asked if they would be taking money and they were like, yeah, we're actually closing around right now. And so I was like, sweet, you know, put me in. And then after I put in money, they were like, oh, we weren't allowed to tell you this, but we, we you know, we, we're going to be on Shark Tank in like a couple of weeks. Uh, and I was like, cool. Uh, and then, you know, since then I've just gotten involved with them and I'm, I'm a huge supporter and, you know, big fan of the founders. No, that's cool. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. So it's, it's also a personal standpoint and you just really believe in the vision. That makes sense. Yeah. I'd be willing, like if I lost all my money, I wouldn't really care. It was not like I put a ton in anyway. It was like a small check, but I more like, believed in the guys i believed in the product and i was just like dude i just want to be involved love that i feel like i've followed you on twitter now for the last couple of years and like candidly even as we're recording this you're like i might have a watch delivery like you have really good taste like between cars houses watches like this kind of stuff that i see you buying out here on twitter um 
just a fun question that I'd love to know is like, let's say you have a crazy big next exit, you got a bunch of cash and just fun money to go and spend around anything cool that like, you're like, I would love to buy this or like, I'm working towards buying something like this. Honestly, I, and this is, this kind of feels good to say, cause I've, and I've been feeling like this for a little while is that like, there's nothing that I really want anymore. Um, which That's is dope. cool. You re- reach that uh, next I, level of Maslow's hierarchy where you're just like spiritual <laughs> enlightenment. I got my, I got my, well, like buying stuff doesn't make you feel good, even though it might seem that way. Like, and of course everyone says that once they've reached their goal and it's like, okay, but, I, and not that I reach, I've reached my goal necessarily, but I, you know, I hit a point where I'm like, okay, I could not work anymore if I didn't want to. Um, maybe I couldn't go buy a bunch of more cars and watches and things like that. I'd have to live a little more frugally, but at that point I own a house. I own what, you know, the stuff that I need and want to live and survive. And I have investments and things that are, smart, you know, smart decisions that I made. And so I think, yeah, I don't, you know, yeah, sure. If I had a hundred million dollars, maybe I'd go upgrade my house into like a family home. Cause I don't have a house for like kids and a wife and stuff. But like, uh, other than that, yeah, man, I don't think there's really anything that I want to buy. Cool. Dennis, if people want to go and check you out, follow the work you're doing or just any of the memes you're putting out, where can they go and check you out? man? <laughs> uh, Dennis Hegstad on Twitter is probably the only place that I really actively post. And uh, yeah, if you if you have a brand that doesn't like their codes being on Honey, come hit me up. Love it, man. Thanks for coming on the show, Dennis. If you thought today's episode was awesome, we would love it if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference and lets us get cooler and cooler guests for future episodes.